at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions as it relates to biblical issues, whether it's politics, whether it's home, whether it's family, whatever it is, we take God's word and we try to apply it to every facet of life. You can reach us directly at 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. When you call, you are welcome to go on the air live. A lot of people don't want to do that, and they simply dictate their question to Deb, who will take your phone calls today, and then they'll pop up here on the screen in front of us. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today for another day to open God's Word. Indeed it is, Pastor. We do have a couple of questions left over from last week, so let's go ahead and get to them. A caller says he heard a program and the speaker, David Chadwick, talking about how the Bible does not say, do not drink wine. And he used the example of Paul advising Timothy to have wine for his ailment. What are your thoughts about this? Well, it's a great question. And if you go to my website, searchthescriptures.org, and you look under blogs, I have a uh, question called uh, Bible drinking in the New Testament, wine drinking in the New Testament, a blog that you can listen to. And I think you will find that helpful. And so um, go to searchthescriptures.org. But let me address it very clearly, a couple of issues to keep in mind. Number one, the Bible is against getting drunk. No one debates that. In fact, when he lists the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, immorality, sensuality, and so forth, drunkenness. And he lists a number of things. And then he says, and things like these that those who live like this have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Uh, Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul makes an explicit statement. He says, do not be deceived. Whenever God says, do not be deceived, he knows there's an opportunity for deception to take place. So, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, shall inherit the kingdom of God. The good news is God can save anyone out of any kind of lifestyle because the next verse says, in such were some of you, but you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord. So God can save anyone. So number one, drunkenness is a sin. Number two, God prohibits the use of strong drink in the Bible. And so again, whenever you read a verse like that, for instance, in Proverbs Uh, You have to ask, well, what does strong drink mean? What does God mean when he explicitly forbids the use of strong drink? Um, He makes a statement, for instance, in the book of Proverbs. And there are actually two key critical passages in Proverbs that deal with this subject of strong drink. Wine is a mocker. 
Strong drink is a brawler, and who's ever intoxicated by it is not wise. So God's not up on strong drink. He's down on it. He gives an exception in the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, where he says, give strong drink to him who is perishing and to him whose life is bitter. It's what we call a Hebrew parallelism. He's not talking about two different things, but one thing the way it's grammatically structured in the original strong drink to the person who's perishing, i.e. whose life is bitter. Today we give morphine to a person who's in incredible pain, not to feed some drug habit or to make him a drug addict or to give him some kind of a high, but to reduce the pain that is in his life. So strong drink could be viewed as a blessing. Why? Because remember the way that water was often delivered to people back in ancient times, just as in many under, underdeveloped countries in our day. Uh, if I go to the Ukraine, uh, in most countries in Eastern Europe, uh, the water delivery system is very poor. A number of their reservoirs are polluted, um, I was talking to one brother who actually had a, um, a, a pumping system business where he cleaned out septic tanks. In Eastern Europe, they have septic tanks, but they don't have septic fields. So it's kind of like a regular business where you pump out septic tanks. There's no septic field for the waste products to go through. So they're constantly dumping out these septic tanks, and there's a fee to dump it. And so what were some of the illegals doing? They were dumping it directly into the reservoirs. I mean, talk about disgusting. Now, if they get caught doing it, there's a fine. But my point is, is that the water quality in many of the countries, especially of Eastern Europe, North Africa, some sections in Middle Africa, it's poor, and you don't want to drink it or you will get sick. And yet missionaries would carry... As recently as 75, 100 years ago, what they would call a wine satchel around their neck. Why did they do that? Because they had to survive. You have to stay hydrated. So when someone uh, gave them a glass of water or if they drew water out of some place, be it a contaminated well or out of the spigot, they would squirt some strong drinks, some wine into it, and that would kill the bacteria and it would make the water safe to drink. That's why wine could be considered a blessing. It was absolutely essential to survive. If you talk to any Hebrew rabbi who knows the Hebrew text, the word for pouring is the word for mixing throughout the Old Testament. Every single instance, I was speaking recently, just a few days ago, to one of the leading rabbis in Jerusalem. He's known all around the world. And we were talking about the etymology of the Hebrew word that's translated pouring or in, in many translations mixing. So when they took wine, which was considered strong drink, remember when we speak of strong drink, we're not talking about the distilled liquors that came about 600 years, maybe at the earliest possible date. Most people would put them around 1400, 1500. The distilled liquors come centuries after the Bible is completed. And so... Whenever you interpret the Bible, it's kind of like interpreting the Constitution of the United States. You want to ask, well, what did it mean to the original audience and its historical grammatical context? And when you can understand what original intent is, then you can apply it to your life in the day in which we live. So when God forbids the use of strong drink, and there are many passages we could have read this morning 
God says, you know, what is he talking about? He's talking about wine that had fermented. Now, some people will go to John 2 and they'll say, well, Jesus made wine. Well, what kind of wine did he make? You see, the, the Bible doesn't specifically address the type of wine. It simply addresses the quality of wine. Now, it is true that the word oinos in Greek that's translated in our English Bibles, wine, or the word yayin in the Hebrew text can refer to both fermented or unfermented. And so if you had grape juice in the first century, what did you call it? Grape juice? No, you called it wine. And once it turned, what did you call it? Wine, or you could call it strong drink, either one. Uh, so the classification became a double classification. It went from simply being called wine to wine slash strong drink because it had fermented. It's inconceivable to me that the Lord made fermented drink. You say, why is that, Pastor? Well, think for just a second what took place in John, the second chapter, when Jesus addressed this issue. Of course, this is the very first miracle that he does in Cana. And um, his mother comes and it says, and when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. There is a purification process that Jewish people go to whenever they eat. Even to this day, the Orthodox Jews uh, go through that whole process. Even if you've ever been to the Western Wall, even before they pick up a Bible, there's a hand-washing process that they go through as they wash their hands. And so the water was there for purification. Jesus said, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said, take out, now draw out some now, and hand it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good until now. Now, follow this. This is really important. And this is why it's critical, I think, to have a literal and a very accurate translation of the word of God. And there were certainly some translations in the history of the church that have been more accurate to the original than others. I mean, I think everyone could agree that, for instance, if I can use an extreme example, that the New World translation that the Jehovah's Witness have produced is an awful translation of the Bible. For instance, in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the way the Greek text reads. The uh, New World translation that the JWs have put out, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. Not God, but a God. Listen, if you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, and you didn't believe there was even a God or didn't know if there was a God, but you knew Koine Greek of the New Testament, you would know that that is a bad translation, that it's impossible to give that kind of nuance to the Greek. Well, when we read here in John chapter 2, uh, in the, in the servant, uh, the, the, I mean, the, uh, the maitre d', so to speak, says every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. There's one translation that reads a little bit differently. And actually the Greek can read either way. Um, every man makes the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, 
And if you have the New American Standard or other Bibles that have marginal footnotes, and there is an alternate Greek reading, you could render the Greek and have become drunk, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. So follow, follow the thought here. He's saying, listen, every man serves the best first. And when men have drunk freely, when they've had their full and they've had what they've wanted, then that which is poor, you, but you've kept the good until now, until the end. Uh, it's like this. You come over to my house and I'm planning to have uh, roast beef, uh, prime rib for, for dinner. And I invite 10, but 25 show up. And so what do I do first? I serve the prime rib. But when I get out of the prime rib, I, I break out the bologna or the hot dogs. I serve the best first. Or you come over to my house and I've got Coca-Cola. But when we run out of the Coca-Cola, I pull out the check cola. I serve the best first, the worst last. It appears that just the opposite, because when he tasted the wine, it was of such superb quality. He says, wow. Now, the NIV renders this, have become drunk. Now, in some take that, and they uh, then make the application that this had to be real wine, because now the people were buzzed and high, and so now they won't know the difference between a low-quality wine and a high-quality wine. That's blasphemous. That's what that is saying, basically, is that Jesus took some people who were high, and he made them higher. He took some people who were drunk and made them drunker. That's blasphemy to say that our Savior led people into sin. Now, again, you could technically translate it that way, but every other single English translation, you won't find another that renders it like the NIV. And by the way, some of the translators of the NIV weren't even born-again Christians. You say, is that important? I think it's very important. Look, scholarship is critical. It's important that when 70, 80, 100, 200 men are involved in a translation of the Bible— that they, of course, uh, understand the fine nuances of the language. Scholarship is important, but so is being born again, because a natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him, he can't comprehend them because they're spiritually appraised. So if you take that, and you could render it, have drunk freely, um, you know, and you take that to mean, well, they were drunk, then you're really blaspheming our Savior. And I, I'm not comfortable doing that. I'm very uncomfortable. And two, it, where did fermented drink come from, by the way? It came from the fall. Remember, in Romans 8, when Paul speaks of the creation, I like the rendering, actually, of the old King James. It says the creation is waxing old. Uh, you could render the Greek, the creation is rotting. You know, a tree falls down and it rots. The creation is rotting away. It's, it, it's, it's a fallen creation. It's not getting better. It's dissipating and it's groaning, it's moaning, it's yearning for it, the creation to be set free. Paul says, just as we are in these fallen bodies, yearning and moaning and groaning for our new bodies when our salvation is somehow completed. So the whole fermentation process is a post-fall thing. So let me ask you a question. When Jesus does a miracle, does he do a miracle that's tainted with post-fall or does he do a miracle that's free without sin? I believe he does a miracle that's without sin. I don't believe for a second Jesus made wine that would make a person drunk. 
But with that said, again, strong drink was a blessing. Wine ferments. They don't have the capacities that we have in our day through preservatives and refrigeration and other things to keep the wine from fermenting. And so what did they do? They mixed it in a ratio, usually four to one or five to one. Four parts water, one part wine, five parts water, one part wine. In fact, Greek literature outside of the Bible refers to a man who drank wine in its fermented uh, state without any mixture of water in it as a barbarian, as a Scythian. And so even the Jewish people, because they do not want to be guilty of drinking strong drink and violating what God said, they mix it in a three to or four to one ratio. They either have fresh wine that's unfermented. And by the way, I've had unfermented fresh wine with all, without all the added sugars that, you know, Welch's and other companies will add. Um, and, it, and it's really uh, quite tasty just in its natural form. It's like drinking coffee without sugar. Once you get used to it, you say, man, I want to taste the coffee flavor and I don't want to taste the sugar. Um, but when it ferments, Orthodox Jews to this day who want to obey the word of God, mix it in a three to four to one ratio. So when Paul said to Timothy, don't drink water only, but take a little bit of wine, what was he saying? He was probably wanting to be a John the Baptist type. Uh, does the Bible teach total abstinence? No, it doesn't. And people who've said, well, Brogy says that the Bible teaches total abstinence. I've never said that. I said, I believe the practice of the believer today should be towards abstinence. But does the Bible teach total abstinence? No, because you could have real wine and you could mix it with water to keep the water pure so that you didn't get sick. And Timothy, especially if you read of his itinerary in the book of Acts, traveled quite a bit and it would be wisdom for him to mix some wine with the water and not to take a Nazarite vow or, you know, never to touch wine at all. We don't have that problem in our day. So the Christian who says, well, you know, I like to have a glass of beer with um, my pizza or a glass of wine with my food. He is really partaking of strong drink. He's doing what the word of God forbids. And it's very, very unwise. Anyway, um, I went longer than I wanted on that, but that's all right. It's an important question. Christians need to think it through. If you want to study it in more detail, uh, you could listen to my message at searchthescriptures.org on John 2. Uh, verses 1 through 11, or you could go to uh, my Romans 14 series where I deal with the whole issue of doubtful things, and, and, I, and I go through a lot more scripture and deal with this topic in much more depth. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on this morning's Bible line. And you can also email us at tbl at net, as has Tammy, all the way from Naples, Italy. She writes, my husband and I are trying to decide about his retiring from the military and where to live after he gets out. How do you feel about fleeces? Would it be immature to think in this way when contemplating where God would have us go? Truly desiring to be in the center of God's will, seeking wise counsel, signed Tim and Tammy. Well, the concept of a fleece, of course, comes from the story of Gideon, who is one of the judges during the time of the judges. And you can read of uh, his experience in Judges 6. And God, of course, directed him to gather the Israelite troops so that they might go against the Midianites in, in battle. And Gideon, of course, wanted to be sure that this was really God's will, God's voice that he was hearing, and that he understood plainly what God had said. 
And so he asked God, if you remember, for a sign to prove that this was truly his will. And so he put out a piece of wool overnight and asked God to make it wet while the surrounding ground around that piece of wool would would be dry. And God did just as Gideon asked. And in the morning, the fleece was wet enough to produce a large bowl of water when it was wrung out. But his faith is so weak. He then asked for another sign, this time to keep the fleece dry while making the surrounding dirt wet. And again, God you know, did exactly what Gideon asked. And, uh, and again, the, the Lord promised victory uh, through the angel of the Lord over the Midianites. So, so putting out the fleece, I think the second time when he asked for a sign was, was really in one sense an expression of unbelief or doubt. But you got to remember too, this is a time in human history when there is no Bible, so to speak. All he had was the Torah, the first five books. He had very limited scripture. Um, so we, he didn't have a completed word of God that, that we have today. And of course, God assures us that in Second Timothy 3, when he speaks of the word of God being God-breathed, the breath of God, that it's profitable to equip us for every single good work. So I don't need a fleece today because God says that the Bible is sufficient. It's able to equip me for every single good work. And the second advantage that we have over Gideon is that every Christian today, of course, has the Holy Spirit who is God himself, who resides in our heart. Paul says to the Colossian church, let the peace of Christ dwell uh, richly in your heart. Um, Let it act. It's a Greek word for uh, let it act as an umpire. Uh, Let let God's word act as an umpire in our life. And so we have the Holy Spirit, something that they didn't have, even in the upper room. And I, I have a sermon that might be helpful to you next two. Uh, on how to find the will of God for your life. And if you go and listen to that sermon, I address this issue. But in Acts 2, they drew lots. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. And so they were in the upper room waiting and they needed to pick a a 12th apostle to take Judas's place because 12 apostles are going to sit on the 12 thrones judging the nation of Israel, and God gave clear guidance through the lot. So we live in a different age. We live in the church age. That's the dispensation we live in. And because of that, God gives us a completed Bible, and he gives us the Holy Spirit. Not to mention, if we are a little bit unsure whether we are, you know, responding just to our emotions and not to the Spirit of God, if we're responding to our own intellect and our own understanding and not leaning on God's understanding, he gives us a multitude of counselors. So, you know, God says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So if you're not sure you're really understanding God's will correctly, then you might want to, you know, speak to some other people who you deem to be wise in their knowledge and their application of the scripture. How do you find them? Well, you look for the signs of wisdom. For instance, he that is wise wins souls. If you talk to someone who never wins a soul to Christ, probably not a wise person. So there are a number of uh, uh, indications that someone is indeed wise, and you go to that person for wisdom and guidance, and and what are they going to do? They're going to point you back to the word of God. And of course, the word of God uh, never is always, the will of God is always consistent with the word of God. So if you come up with something that you sense is God's will and it contradicts the word of God, then it's really not God's will. 
And so someone came to me one day and they had an opportunity to work for an alcohol distributor. They said, well, God provided this job for me and it's going to pay $60,000 a year. And I said, well, I'm not sure God provided that. Well, what do you mean, pastor? The will of God never contradicts the word of God. So I said, now you're going to be involved in an industry, carting around beer and wine and liquor to, uh, to people to help make them drunk. Listen, the, the average person who goes into the convenience store and he gets his six pack, he, he's there to get a buzz. He's there to get a little bit high. He's there to quote unquote relax. And so you're participating in what God calls evil in the book of Habakkuk. Woe to you who gives his neighbor to drink to make him drunk. You know, God doesn't say that very often. There's just a limited time in the Bible where God gives some woes, but he does in, in this realm. So that's how I would respond. You know, um, by the time, uh, you know, Gideon is dead and the church is born and the spirit is come and the Bible's completed, we have so much more. That's not to say that God can't confirm through circumstances. He certainly can. I remember in seeking the Lord as to where I should go to seminary and God made it really clear. And, you know, through the sense of peace that he gave me, through the biblical uh, admonitions of what I needed in the seminary. And when I chose that seminary, God just let the things fall into place one after the other. Uh, We sold our house without a real estate agent. We found a new house. I mean, God, I, I could go on for the next 20 minutes of things that God did to pave the way for us to go to that place. So those were confirmations. Uh, but they weren't how I discerned God's will. Anyway, let's uh, let's go on to the next question. 843-525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at net. Don't forget, you can always listen to uh, the archived um, copies of our Bible lines at net. How do they do that, Rick, uh, when you go to the website? Well, simply go to net. look on the uh, left side of the screen, and you will see Uh, the Bible line archives. And And let me just say, uh, many people will uh, email us a question at from search org, and Rick brings them up from the Bible line. And then that person is emailed back. Sometimes it takes us a month to get to a question. But uh, when you submit a question through search org, ask Dr. Brogy a question, those are posted on the screen. Rick brings them up on uh, Tuesdays when we have the live Bible line. And then you're emailed back saying, if you will listen to today's Bible line and the date is given, and then you can go to the Bible line. And Rick has all the questions that were answered that day. You can see, oh, mine's the fifth question. And you can scan down the bar. You don't have to listen to the whole Bible line and you can get your question answered. Indeed. Uh, we've got one question that came in through Search the Scriptures from Alexis, who is now stationed with her husband in Vancouver, Washington. She says, I was a single mother for 10 years on active duty before I met my husband. I have a 12-year-old son, and my husband and I have twin daughters. Fast forward. After 14 years of military service, I am transitioning my career to the reserves this year while my hubby remains on active duty. God has radically been working in my heart and has called me home full-time to raise and educate our now three children. We are praying for more children, twin boys hopefully, I've been walking with the Lord nine and a half years now, my hubby two and a half. My question is, as a strong woman in the faith, I feel like there's no room in our growing family unit for my strong personality and faith because it unintentionally usurps my husband's positional authority. I'm doing my best to be a submissive wife and have freedom to be myself, but 
Some days I feel like a robot. I feel like I can't say a whole lot for fear of undermining him or even challenging some decisions he makes. Uh, We take our spiritual role seriously and desire to have an authentic, well-functioning, godly family. I listen to Audrey Brogy's Woman's Life, Mothering from the Heart series, and I'm encouraged. What is the balance between submitting to my husband and having the freedom to be the strong, godly woman God has groomed me to be uh, during these single years of mine? I recognized my spiritual gifts and am exercising them in children's ministry at our local church. How do I temper those strengths so I don't discourage my husband and allow him to grow and flourish as a godly man? Boy, that is a great question, and I appreciate your heart in that. You know, some women grow up in homes where the wife... The mother is the boss. And very often we become what we see modeled. Of course, when we come to faith, God wants to renew our mind. And some people come to faith, but they're just baby Christians, haven't grown up much, haven't had their mind renewed much. And so what do they do? They act like their mother does and they run the show. And and by the way, that's a bad thing, especially for young men, because you end up feminizing boys. You make them to be wimpy Men, especially when a man, you know, just allows his wife to run him over because he's not a spiritual leader and he's not growing and he's not helping his wife to grow where she can really understand her very important God given role. So with that said, you know, you're growing in the faith, you're learning about, you know, the difference between a man who's supposed to lead and you need a leader in a home and God calls the man to be the head. That doesn't mean he's better. The Bible affirms that men and women are equal. But while it affirms our equality, it also underscores that our roles are complementary. And so we speak of complementarianism. What does that mean? It's a good 50-cent theological word to say that men and women in the body of Christ are equal, but they have different roles. And when you give them the same roles, you really create huge problems. When little boys are feminized, by a lack of male leadership. You you set them up for disaster. You know, um, recently I was counseling a family and this is a single mom and she adopted a little baby at, you know, at a young age. And the little guy was just, you know, he's 12 years old and he's very feminine. And so he goes to school and they make fun of him and they mock him and they laugh at him and they call him certain slur words and they say he's this or he's that because of his effeminate qualities. And so I told that young mom, I said, look, you know, you're growing in Christ and God's renewing your mind. And number one, your, your young man, you know, needs some male models. And, and by the way, we, we provide that at Community Bible Church for our single moms. Uh, We encourage our single moms, one, to find other families where there's whole families that they can be attached to. And wise, mature families will care about single moms. They won't just think about uh, a couple, a family because they're married. They'll think about, um, you know, oh, I want to have them over because they're married like us. They'll also include single moms in. You know, my wife and I over the years have had single moms with their kids out to our home. Why? Because we realize for many of those single mothers, it's one of the few models their children will see that's healthy. And they need that. And our young men need to have some boys. Uh, The young men need to have some dads who are willing to, you know, take them under their wing with their boys. For instance, when we have a men's camp out every year, we uh, invite some of the single moms who have boys 
to come on the camp out with those other men who have their boys. And why? Because they need to see some godly roles. And so there's a lot really that, that is at stake here. But so how do you balance it? Well, God doesn't call you to be a doormat, so to speak. You are to your husband what the Holy Spirit is to me. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And that's a title, one of the many titles of the Holy Spirit. And we begin a brand new series tomorrow night that will go 20 to 25 weeks. And every week stands on its own. And so if you miss a week, you can come back the next week. Uh, One week might be on blasphemy of the Spirit. Another week might be on the attributes of the Spirit. Another week might be on the... um, uh, the role of the spirit before conversion, at conversion, a, um, uh, after conversion. So each week stands on its own. But the Holy Spirit, one of the many titles that he is given is helper. That's a title that God gives to the woman as well towards her husband. She is his helper. And a wise man will not diminish that role. And so even if your husband is young in the faith and he doesn't understand that role, what you can do is you can, one, do all that you can to develop that relationship with him. And hopefully you're having some time alone with him every week. Uh, Ideally, he would take the leadership and he would say, well, honey, let's go out for a date tonight and, you know, we'll get a babysitter for the kids. If he's not there yet, maybe you could just gently say, you know, we'll call your husband Fred. Fred, I'll... It would be really nice if we could have a date night every week and we could get out and spend some time together and just to develop our relationship. Do you think maybe you could make that happen with a babysitter and it doesn't have to be expensive? And and so you begin where you get out and you begin to talk and he hears your heart and you hear his heart. That's like really, really important. And in the course of conversation is there are decisions that, you know, involve your family and the direction it's going to take or financial, spiritual, whatever it is, schooling decisions. You can come alongside and you say, well, you know, husband, God's given me to be your helper. You're my head, but I'm your helper. And so, you know, as your helper, this is what I think. And you can share it. But because you're the head of our home, I leave that decision in your lap. You know, and I've told this to a number of women over the years, and they've actually tried this. And of course, we're not talking about issues of leadership that are non-biblical. He wants to make a decision for your family that is against the word of God. Obviously, you don't submit. If your husband came to you and said, well, you know, uh, I don't think we need to go to church anymore on Sundays. We don't have enough time together as a family. And I want us to go to the park and the beach on Sunday mornings. You can go on Wednesday night you would respectfully disobey and say, well, honey, I'd love to go to church on Wednesday night too. It's great to gather with the saints at other time than the Lord's day, but the Lord's day is a non-optional day for me because God commands us to gather on the first day of the week. You know, we don't think that way anymore. We, we just are so loose, you know, in our view of even the Decalogue that if it's convenient and it doesn't interfere with my schedule, we'll gather with God's people. And that's really sad. And that's why so many families are so weak and why they are growing up kids who who do not see a priority with uh, the Lord. Say, I've got two grandchildren sitting with me here in the studio and they're both here in their dad in the church. They attend um, in Atlanta. They, they had recently a, a camp out. Now, I'm not, I think it was maybe an out, outside ministry that came in. And this outside ministry, you know, had camp outs for boys. It's kind of like a, a Christian Boy Scout alternative because a lot of churches have basically jettisoned the Boy Scouts 
due to their position now on uh, homosexual marriage. But this particular ministry, so to speak, rather than come home Saturday night, uh, they were going to stay Sunday morning and just have the camp out. They were going to basically blow off gathering with the saints in church leadership on Sunday. And that was kind of sad. But my son said, no, no, we're just going to go Friday night. And we're going to leave Saturday afternoon. My two grandsons sitting here next to me in the studio watching. They had a great time. But what was their dad saying? Their dad was saying that the Lord's Day is a priority to me. That I put a premium on it. And when these guys grow up, they're not going to say, well, let's start our vacation on Sunday morning because we can get a really cheap plane flight then. And, you know, I'm here on Expedia and the best price is if we leave Sunday morning. Yeah, we'll miss church, but that's okay. We're on vacation. You know, I know pastors who, when they go on vacation, they uh, say, well, I'm on vacation, so I don't go to church. I mean, come on. You know, this is one of the Ten Commandments. It has a different application to the first day of the week, but it is still applicable. Just like the fifth commandment, when it says, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you and that you might live long in the land. What land? The land of Israel. But it's applicable to the church that you might live long on the earth when it's re-quoted in the New Testament. You don't have to be in Israel. You can be Massachusetts or South Carolina or any place on the planet. It's a promise, a dual promise that God gives to children who honor father and mothers. And so I'm not talking about you as a wife doing something that is against the will of God. But let's say your husband says, I want to buy this new boat. Okay, well, husband, I don't think it's wise. Let me tell you why. Number one, we've got zero money saved for the kids for college. And it seems maybe a far time away, but it's actually only, you know, our oldest son is 10 and in seven and eight years, it's going to be upon us. And we haven't saved a dime yet towards their college education. Yeah, we're hoping they're going to get scholarships. But even if they get scholarships, there's a lot of other expenses. And I think we need to start saying, well, I really want a boat. and I want to go out fishing with the boys on the lake. And I need to get a boat. Well, husband, as your helper, this is what I think. Um, but you're the head of our home. And whatever decision you make, since, you know, you're the head I'm going to yield to that decision. You know what you find out, wives, is that when you start in a respectful way giving counsel to your husband and then he goes out and he makes a decision and he falls flat on his face, he will stop and he will pause without you saying, I told you so. He will think and say, you know, my wife did tell me and I did not respect her as my helper. And you're going to have his ear. So you want to do it in a non-competitive, respectful way. And remember, he's the one ultimately where the chips fall. He's the one who gives an account as the head of your home. And he stands before the Lord with any expression of leadership, whether it's church leadership or home leadership or governmental leadership. There is always with that leadership a stricter judgment. And God repeats that principle many times throughout the word of God. So um, be his helper. And you know what you find, too, is that when you are really towards respectful for, towards him, and one way you can do that is you build your hubby up in front of the children. You never tear him down. Uh, and you show them, too, that you are submissive to authority. And by the way, where does a, a child learn to respect the teacher in school? Where does he learn to respect the police officer and governmental authority and ecclesiastical authority, God's design is in the smallest, smallest, 
microcosm of life, namely the home. And so many times, you know, children are rebellious in a home and parents come in and my 10 year old won't listen to me. My eight year old throws fits. And one of the questions I have to ask them is, well, tell me, how are you as husband and wife getting along? Is there a harmony in your relationship? Number one, if there's not, if you're fighting like cats and dogs, that's going to create an, an incredible insecurity in the hearts of your children. And number two, if you as the wife is not submitting to his authority, you expect them now to submit to your authority. You become the model. It's the smallest microcosm of life, the family. And so what's happening in America? The family is falling apart. And you wonder why all day long these dear teachers in the governmental school system, they're trying to teach some basic things, but they're dealing with disciplinary problems all day long. Now we have something called ADD or ADHD or any other kind of form. Like, there was no such thing as ADD when I was a kid. Where did this, is this some disease that just floated out of heaven and now is descended upon students all across America where bells are rung and the school nurses come in and they administer Ritalin to drug the kids up to slow them down so that they're not behavioral problems? No, I'll tell you what it is. Tension deficit disorder is just that. It's a lack of attention shown to children because they're being scooted off to daycares. The dad and moms have no time for them. And so there is a attention deficit disorder and that shows itself in behavioral problems. So what else can they do? I mean, how do you manage a herd of 40 kids in a classroom? You got to drug them and you slow them down, but that's not the real problem. That's just a bandaid on the solution. So anyway, I appreciate that question from Vancouver, Washington, 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Our next caller dictated their question. They would like you to please explain Hebrews 8, verses 9 to 13. Hebrews 8, verses 9 to 13. Well, if I started, I might never get off the air today, but let me read it for starters. Uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. He's speaking about the new covenant. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. After what days? That's important. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Now, if you read this Old Testament quotation, and by the way, you need a Bible with uh, footnotes in it, uh, with marginal references. Uh, Different publishers do it different way. The New American Standard identifies for you an Old Testament quote and that it puts it in all capital letters. So you say, oh, yeah, that that's a quote from the Old Testament because I can see the change in the typeset. And so uh, some some publishers set it off as a separate paragraph. So it just depends on whatever Bible you have that's been produced by a given publisher. So if you were in verse eight 
and you saw, oh yes, in the middle of verse 8, it goes to all capital letters, and you will see a little number one out in the margin, and it would take you out to verse 8, and it would show you also that this Old Testament quotation is coming from the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. So um, it's a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah of a new covenant. And it's different from the old covenant. Now, when you read it too, I might also add that it reads just a little bit differently than if you go back and you look it up in your English Bibles in the prophet Jeremiah. Why is that? Because your rendition of Jeremiah 3131 is coming from Hebrew into English. Your rendition of the book of Hebrews in this quotation is coming from Hebrew to Greek into English. And so very often the New Testament will quote what's called the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And whenever the New Testament quotes the Septuagint, it quotes it with absolute authority. It's saying the way the translators rendered this text is accurate. And so in Jeremiah 31, we have the promise of a new covenant, which is unlike the old covenant. The old covenant was based on, you know, people bringing sacrifices to God. But remember, as the writer of the Hebrews is going to underscore when he brings this subject up again in the 10th chapter, the sacrifices of the Old Testament could never take away sin. Those were done in faith. They were, they were being saved, in essence, on credit. They, they believed that a day would come when Messiah would die, a substitutionary death in their place. And what the Old Testament sacrifices were to Old Covenant believers is what baptism is to us. Baptism looks back on the completed sacrifice. When we're immersed under the water, we're saying, my faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, period. When they made the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were saying these are symbolic of the ultimate coming sacrifice. The lambs that were slaughtered were a picture of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So in a real true sense, they could not have the same kind of relationship with the Spirit of God that we can have. And so in Jeremiah 31, he says, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they're all going to know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now understand, we're going to study this in our series on pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that is now unfolding on Wednesday nights. And in that, we're going to see the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And you will discover that he came just upon select individuals and even then in a different way than he does under the new covenant. Even John the Baptist, who had a touch of the Spirit of God while he was in his mother's womb, and where he was anointed with the Spirit, he was not indwelt by the Spirit. And because he died before Golgotha took place, Jesus can say there was never a man born from a woman who is greater than John. But the person who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. How so? Because even the least of the believer in the new covenant kingdom has the indwelling presence of the Spirit, something that John did not permanently have. And so under the Old Covenant, there was just a select few that could have this special, close relationship to the Lord. So Moses, go, intercede to God for us. We've sinned against the Lord. Why couldn't they go directly? Because not everybody was a believer priest. There was select people who had 
access directly to the living God. That's all changed under the new covenant. And by the way, the prophet Ezekiel says it this way. He doesn't quote Ezekiel, but again, where he speaks of this new covenant, he says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk on my spirit statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So again, because sin would be forgiven, this could all take place because as Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four says, uh, they'll all know me from the greatest to the least declares the Lord because or for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more because in time and space, sin is forgiven on Golgotha. When the resurrected Lord ascends into heaven, just as he promised, he sent the spirit and he fulfills the new covenant in the church. Now it's still going to be fulfilled in Israel. And so the writer of the Hebrews speaks of its present fulfillment, but there is coming a day as Jeremiah 31 in Ezekiel chapter 36 indicates that this is going to be fulfilled in Israel. In in Ezekiel 37, the vision of the valley of dry bones, that incredible prophecy, the valley of dry bones prophecy. Um, He talks about these bones that come to life. Uh, What's he talking about? He's not talking about the church. He's talking about the Israel. And we're going to study this in our series of Daniel Revelation. We're coming back to Daniel shortly here. And we're going to discover there is coming a day called the time of Jacob's trouble, called the Great Tribulation Period in the New Testament and in Daniel 12, a time of Great Tribulation. And one of its principal functions is to bring the people of Israel to faith and Yeshua as Hamashiach, as the Messiah. It's going to happen. And the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy will be fulfilled. And the Jewish people who today have a heart of stone, with the exception of those who are members of the church and are believing Jews in Jesus as Messiah, the rest will have new hearts and new life. And they're going to experience that intimacy that God intended for them to have. So that's the short answer. I could go on for a long time. And, and, and I talk about even the abuses of Hebrews 8 in my series on Hebrews. Because there are some who say, yeah, this is fulfilled in the church. God's done with national Israel. There's no future for the Jews, etc., etc. And they dismiss the Jewish people. And no, there's a partial fulfillment in the church. There's a full, full fulfillment in Israel during the time of the Great Tribulation. So if you go to searchthescriptures.org, you'll see some books of the Bible that I preach. You can click on Hebrews. I don't remember, maybe preach 30 sermons in the book of Hebrews. Find the one that is done on Hebrews 8. The verse breakdowns are done chapter by chapter, and you can listen to that message, and I think you'll find it very helpful. Great question. Let's go to the next. Hugh from Scranton, South Carolina, writes, What church would you recommend near Florence, South Carolina? Yesterday, I was actually dialoguing with a pastor in Florence, South Carolina. Um, His name is Bill Monroe. He's the pastor of the first, uh, excuse me, of Florence Baptist Temple. It's a really fine, healthy church. In fact, I am, we have a wildlife supper here with Tim Tebow on Thursday night. They have their very first wildlife supper on Friday night. 
and they've never done one before. So they came down and asked for some help and for some wisdom. And they said, well, we're going to pray that God will give us 600 men. And that's all we figure we can handle. I said, look, first wildlife supper. If you get two, 250, you're doing fantastic. Call me yesterday. We got 600. We've, we've filled in. I'm the speaker Friday night for that wildlife supper, but I wouldn't go to that church if I didn't deem it to be a healthy church and a good church and a solid church. So that's where I would go and I would steer you away from the New Spring Church in the Florence area that has emptied out a lot of Southern Baptist churches, Perry Noble pastors it. Uh, it's a dangerous church. It's an unhealthy church. And I would steer you far away from that church. But a lot of believers are getting sucked up into it. Why? Because they don't know their Bibles anymore. And they think Perry Noble is a great pastor. Listen, he's got so much error. He's either a false teacher. At best, he's a novice, and he's unqualified to stand in a pulpit. I don't say that lightly. For me to say that uh, about a pastor, I've given it a lot of thought and prayer. He's helping to destroy the church in America. Um, But I would recommend Florence Baptist Temple. That's probably your best shot if you're in the Florence area. Let's go to the next question. I think we can get this one in. This person is concerned about the teaching of Hank Hanegraaff. Can you help? Well, Hank Hanegraaff kind of has a Bible line, so to speak, uh, like like we do. This question has come up a number of times over the years. Um, he has some questionable point of views on a number of things. I've only actually heard him a couple times. I was out on the West Coast and renting a car to go speak at a missions conference and turn it on. And there was Hank Hanegraaff and someone called him with a question and his answer was less than sound. Um, is he a believer? Yeah, he's got the gospel, but there's a lot of really controversial positions he takes on a number of issues that I would just differ with him on. So, um, anyway, uh, do we have time for one more question? I guess we're out of time. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, why don't you go ahead and promote pneumatology and tell us what that's all going to be about. So pneumatology, the Greek word pneumatos is the word for spirit. And so when we speak of pneumatology, we're speaking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And it's a major doctrine. And you can study different doctrines in the Bible, though they all interface one another, whether it's the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of the Bible. Every doctrine interfaces another doctrine. Pneumatology is a systematic study of what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. So what kind of questions are we going to address? We're going to talk about who is the Holy Spirit and How does he change my life today? How is it possible, say, for God to be three in one? How is the Holy Spirit's relationship in towards New Testament saints, say, different from those who lived before the coming of Christ? We're going to talk about did the Holy Spirit have a unique relationship with Christ and his apostles? We're going to talk about uh, how to demonstrate that he's both a person and God. We're going to talk about the roles that he plays in our lives before we're saved and how he's operating today in the lives of unbelievers. We're going to talk about ministries that are unfolded the day we're saved. What happens after we're saved? How do we relate to him? We're just going to talk about so many different issues, his relationship to people during the Great Tribulation, a host of issues. So if you really want to understand the Holy Spirit and how he works in your life and how he can change your life, I would encourage you to consider coming Wednesday night. We have a program for the kids. Uh, We all meet at 630 in the auditorium at about five minutes till seven. The kids exit to kids choirs where they learn great Christian music, healthy hymns and Bible verses that they put to song. And we'll have a time of study this Wednesday, the Lord's Supper. And then, as always, 
Uh, there are some people who go to our prayer microphones with those requests that have been submitted, and we agree in our hearts together. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. May you walk with Jesus Christ.